Let's hear then the word of our God. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast a faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> Amen. Well, Paul here, of course, is giving some instructions to Titus, and the primary instruction here is to appoint elders in all the different churches throughout Crete, whether there were three or four or ten or twelve, we don't know. But of course, it can't just be anyone. It must be, first of all, a man, Secondly, it must be an older, wiser, experienced man, at least older and wiser spiritually. And he must be a faithful husband, he must be a good father, and he must be one who can oversee the flock and one who can faithfully manage God's house. Then we saw a handful of vices that he must avoid. You cannot have a man as a leader in the church who is proud, who is easily angered, who is controlled by alcohol, who gets into fights, nor who is greedy for money. And so Paul then gives these things thus far in terms of responsibilities, character qualities, and Titus must uh, appoint men who are like this or not like certain things. And so we conclude those thoughts here tonight by looking next here at verse 8 where he gives us uh, a half a dozen positive things that we are to look for uh, for elders in the church. And so we begin here then in verse 8 with the first one, hospitable. All right, now you may remember I've mentioned some about this um, when we looked at this word before. We've seen it in First Peter, we've seen it in First Timothy, and even in other contexts. And in the first century, it had a very specific idea, and even more broadly than that than the first century. And the idea here is that when someone would come either to your house or to town or something like that, and even though they're a complete stranger, you didn't know them from Adam, so to speak, um, if they needed a light's lodging, we were to show hospitality. They didn't really have hotels, certainly not in the way that we have today, and even the ones that they had were usually not very nice, uh, and I don't mean because of dirtiness. Um, and so uh, let's turn a moment <clears throat> here to uh, Genesis chapter 18, because uh, here we see an example of this very thing. In Genesis 18, um, we have the Lord coming to Abraham. Now, the biggest question um, really in this chapter is, when did Abram, Abraham come to realize that this was actually the Lord? Um, it's probable that he didn't know that at first, but at some point along the way he came to realize that. But as we see here in verse 1, then in Genesis 18, it says, And the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. 
And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I'll bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts and that you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant after that. And so they did, and Abraham gets food ready, and certainly got some servants to do that, and and so forth. And presumably, if these three men had a donkey or something with them, then Abraham would have provided fodder and, and, and such for that as well. Now, again, notice it says there, he saw three men, though it says the Lord appeared. So, again, when does he... Uh, recognize who this is we're not totally sure but do you see how Abraham basically jumps up he's he's taking his siesta in the in the heat of the day and uh, immediately shows hospitality uh, to these uh, three men who of course is pre-incarnate Christ with the two angels um, and uh, again this is something that is common we we read from third John this morning and that was part of what John talks about. They, they are to show hospitality, and this one guy was preventing people from doing that. And Paul rebukes them and so forth. Um, now, add to all of this in the first century that uh, when you have believers who were traveling around and needed a place to stay, it, it, it was very important that other believers would help them out. Now, this is simply because they were living in a, in a culture that was opposed to the truth. Um, especially as you go on later in the first century into the second century, it was very important that Christians would help out fellow Christians as they traveled. And so it was more uh, needed, you might say, in a non-Christian society. And so whether it was a preacher or teacher like Paul or Titus, or whether it was an everyday Christian, uh, this was something that uh, Christians were supposed to do. And here in particular... This is what elders were supposed to do in uh, leading the flock in this way. All right, now today, uh, we can have something similar. Uh, if you have a missionary that uh, comes to visit his home on, uh, excuse me, home on his assignment here in the States or something like that, then we can provide hospitality when they come to visit or something like that. There are some denominations even that have a, a, uh, a group of, of people that sign up and such, and, and when fellow Christians need a place to stay, they, they uh, look them up and, and do that. My, my dad's some, done some of that over the years, and my mom, of course, uh, before. Um, and uh, the Mennonites have a group that do this kind of thing. So uh, we, we do see some similar things today in terms of what the initial hospitality idea meant. But when we think of hospitality, most of the time, <laughs> we think of inviting someone over for dinner or for dessert, or something to that effect. Maybe we host some church function at our house, uh, maybe a Bible study or a game night or whatever. The overall idea here is we must be welcoming to others. We must care for those, even those we don't know, and provide a welcoming place. And in particular, elders must do this. They must be inviting, make people feel comfortable in their homes, in one sense, you could say you make them feel a part of your family. Now, certainly there's a financial component to this. Uh, we don't know exactly what it cost Abraham, but certainly it cost him an animal, uh, as well as some other things. And when you didn't uh, slaughter animals for meat, 
on an everyday basis like we do today, you know, that, that was rather significant. You know, we raise very few animals. Can you imagine slaughtering one of them just because someone came to visit? I mean, this, this can be a big deal for people. Certainly there's a time component. Uh, it takes time to, to entertain strangers, to show hospitality. And, and so good elders uh, are doing these things. They're personable, open, inviting, welcoming, these kind of ideas. And they do it at their home, but we also can do it at church. When people come to visit, we um, introduce ourselves, we maybe ask them questions about who they are, where they're from, or something like that, maybe help them know where the bathroom is, and maybe a place to sit, or which Sunday school class to go to, and, and so on and so forth. Now, as our culture descends more and more into non-Christian um, behaviors and so forth, uh, helping fellow Christians just in everyday travel, not just visiting our church, uh, may become more and more important for us. And so again, uh, elders are supposed to do these things. It's not just the job of the pastor, but of uh, all the elders as they oversee the flock and manage God's house. All right, let's look at two passages here in just a moment. If you turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says it to to Timothy here, not just to Titus. So in 1 Peter 3, verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, a husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Okay, so there it is, as well as some other words we're going to see here in a moment. Now let's turn also to 1 Peter chapter 4. In uh, 1 Peter... Peter is more general. He's not just speaking to leaders in the church like Paul does. But notice in 1 Peter 4, verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So this is just something that all Christians ought to do. So again, it's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the elder's job. But it is all of us as Christians. We should show hospitality, making our homes a welcoming place for those that maybe we don't know, but even for those that we do know, and having them over and so forth. All right, well, <clears throat> a few thoughts here on this uh, first positive virtue that uh, he mentions here. Now, the next one is a lover of what is good. A lover of what is good. Now, uh, two things here right from the beginning first of all when we're using the term good we're not talking about aesthetic beauty so we're not talking about loving a a good uh orchestra concert or or enjoying a sunset or something like that though certainly we could but that's not the focus here um it's loving morally good things and the second thing to mention here right from the beginning this is very similar to the first word The word hospitable is actually a lover of strangers. It's literally what the word means. Someone who loves strangers or loves visitors or something like that. Well, now we're talking about someone who loves what is good. Now, notice how general that is. We can fill it in the blank with all kinds of things, right? We're talking about someone who supports a good cause, maybe pro-life or maybe sending money to Damar Hamlin's charity or something like that. 
um, caring about the well-being of others or uh, just uh, loving, uh, doing loving things for other people. Um, and so when we use the term charity, we might automatically think Salvation Army or, or something to that effect, uh, but we can be charitable in other ways too. Uh, but again, do you see how broad this is? There are all kinds of applications. But we're looking for a man who loves good things and does not love things that are evil. Now, we can expand on it in this way. I, I made a distinction between ascetic beauty and moral, moral goodness. But when we're talking about moral goodness, this is moral goodness defined according to Scripture. And so we've been told in the last couple of years, for example, that it is a good thing to wear a mask or to get a vaccine or to oppose Trump or to pay reparations or whatever it is, right? We hear, we hear these things over and over and over and over again. We're told these are the good things that we are to love. Now, are they really? Let's evaluate them according to the scriptures. And even some Christians would say these things, right? The point is that we must define goodness according to God's word, not according to politics, not according to the media, not according to the latest woke thing, not according to my selfish desires either. We are to define goodness according to God and what he tells us. <clears throat> so if you turn here a moment then to Philippians chapter 4. We'll look at one passage here for this word. And uh, <clears throat> Paul does give us somewhat of a definition in this, uh, in this rather uh, well-known verse. In Philippians 4, verse 8, he says this, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are go of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Or we could just simply say, love those things, right? Those are good things. Now, once again, as, as Christians, this should characterize us. But especially as leaders in the church, we are to love these kinds of things, not the things in the world. And what the world defines as good. All right, let's come back here then now to the third word. And I like how the New King James uses uh, sober-minded here. Uh, your translation may just simply have sober, may have self-controlled or something to that effect. Uh, but the word does emphasize the mind, or focusing on our thinking. And so you could say self-control in our thoughts, having a sound mind, uh, being sensible, being prudent, being thoughtful. Uh, we could even translate the word as someone who is serious, who is aware of the responsibilities placed upon them. And, of course, that's important for an elder. Uh, you can use the terms temperate and moderate here, hence the term sober, but it's far more than, than alcohol. And, in, in fact, it, that's not really the point necessarily. It's about how we think. Now, maybe how we think about alcohol, but, again, it's, it has more to do with our thoughts. Um, maybe we could summarize it this way and just simply said, say, someone who makes good decisions. Okay, we're looking for men like that, people who make good decisions. 
Now, you, you may recall that we just read in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, this same word. So Paul says it to Timothy, not just to Titus. And if you look here in Titus, in chapter 2, you'll see the word again, actually four more times. In verse 2, it says, older men are to be sober. Here's the same word. They just use sober in this case. Uh, in verse 5, the, the young women, the first word, are to be discreet, but it's the same word. In verse 6, young men are to be sober-minded. And then down in verse 12, it says, uh, right in the middle of the verse, should live soberly. That's the same word every time. And, you know, obviously they give some different translations here. But our minds are, are the focal point. We need to make good decisions. And, and notice, it's not just the elders that are to do that, but all Christians. And so we'll develop that point in chapter 2. Now, because five times he mentions this word here in Titus, uh, this has led some people to suggest that um, this was an especial need in Crete. Uh, now think about it like this. Um, the, the church in Ephesus may have been around for up to 10 years by now. Okay? Certainly seven or eight years, but maybe as much as 10 years. Now we think, well, that's not very long. But again, Paul's planning all these churches. All these churches are relatively young. But compared to the church in Crete, uh, the one in Ephesus had been around for a while. And so making good decisions had been part of what they were doing for a longer period of time. And so these, these new believers, these new churches, these new elders in Crete, there's this emphasis here on uh, making good decisions. And as we'll see in verses 10 and following, there are a lot of crazy ideas out there. And so the elder must uh, think clearly on these things. Um, you know, as we think about our own culture and we think about some of the crazy things that we're hearing, that a man can say that he's a woman and, you know, men can get pregnant and, you know, all these crazy things that we hear. Yeah. We need leaders that can think clearly and make good decisions doctrinally as well as everyday things. So, no surprise that Paul lists this one here. All right, well, let's look at the next one then, just. This is the word can, that can be translated as righteous, and your translation may do that. Um, same meaning here, to be just or to be righteous. Uh, it has the idea of being upright or law-abiding, uh, someone who lives with integrity, someone who is honest, someone who is fair. In light of the next word, uh, this one seems to emphasize our relationship with others, our actions toward other people. Now, in light of the Greek culture, obviously they're in Crete here. Um, and remember when Eric talked about some of the virtues in Sunday school uh, here um, several months ago, this was one of them. And so Paul here is using the same term, but he clearly has a Christian twist and meaning to it. We are not just law-abiding and just and righteous and so forth in regard to man's law, but according to God's law. We're not good according to the world's standards. We are good according to God's standards. So we are upright and honest and fair in, in, according to what he wants. Now, there's going to be some overlap. Okay? If you have false weights and measures, 
An unchristian can understand that and whether or not they're being just. Now, let me bring out this point here just briefly. Um, the word just or righteous is not found in the list in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this has led some people to suggest that the believers in Crete were just less mature. They needed a more basic virtue to be mentioned here uh, because they were younger in the faith. And maybe that's true. Uh, maybe it was a, a particular problem in Crete. But whatever the case, obviously, whether it's there or not, we need to be just as Christians and certainly as leaders in the church. <clears throat> Let's turn a moment to 1 John chapter 3, and we'll look here briefly at one example for this one. <clears throat> in uh, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7, John says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now that's the same word. And as I said a little bit ago, right, just and righteous, same thing. So you could say, he who practices justice is just, just as he is just. So God is just, God is righteous. If we act like him, then we'll be a good leader in the church. And these are the kind of men we did look for. All right, now, the next word here back in Titus is the word holy. And at least that's how the New King James translates the word. Your translation may have something else. This is not the normal word for holy. This word emphasizes piety, being devout, being dedicated. Holy is part of it, but I think a different word would be better here. And uh, piety maybe, or pious, maybe the best uh, way of translating this word. This one clearly focuses on our relationship with God, okay? whereas the last one suggests our relationships with others. The point is that this man is going to be committed to God. This man is going to seek to please God. He's going to be devoted to godly living in everything he does. There's going to be an inward purity about him. He's not just going to uh, uh, do outwardly religious things, but he's going to obey from the heart. There's godliness from the heart is the idea here. You can put it this way. We need to be, as Christians in general, but especially as leaders in the church, we need to obey God even when no one is watching. We need to obey God from the heart even when it's unpopular, even when it may be harmful to ourselves. Pious people will do that. They will do what is right no matter what. They will serve God no matter what happens. And so we need to look for men like this. And those of us who are leaders, we need to do these kinds of things. And certainly as Christians. Now let me make uh, two comments here. First of all, we need to make a distinction between piety and pietism. Pietism as... An approach to Christianity is imbalanced. Pietism tends to avoid the world, to kind of uh, wall yourself off. You know, monks in a monastery, hermits, you know, sitting on uh, clefts of rock and such, and worshiping God all day. You know, that's that's pietism, but that's avoiding the world, and that's not what true piety is all about. We are to engage with the world. We are to transform it for Christ. And so 
Make sure in your mind when you think of piety, you don't think of those kinds of people. That, that's an imbalance. That's an extreme. Okay, but we are to obey God from the heart. And then the second thing is, let's turn back a few pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And here we have one other example of, of this term here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, <clears throat> and beginning in verse 10. Paul again is speaking here. You are witnesses in God also, how devoutly, there's the word, and justly and blamelessly, see three key words that we've seen, uh, we have behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now you remember that it's Paul... Silas and Timothy, who write 1 Thessalonians, at least in one way or another. Paul's probably the principal author. Um, but all three of them are, are, um, uh, have signed their name, you might say, in this letter to the Thessalonians. And, and Paul's saying, look, you've seen how we have been pious. We have been just. We have been blameless. And so imitate that. And we, of course, need to do the same. All right, well, let's come then to the last word here in verse 8, and that is self-controlled. Self-controlled. Now, we talked about sober-minded just a moment ago. That one emphasizes the mind. This one is more general. And so we're talking about self-discipline. We're talking about restraining ourselves in, in all kinds of ways. In our thinking, yes, but also in our behavior. And so we're looking for men to lead us who have an inner strength to control their desires and their actions. Again, to connect with what Eric talked about here a little while ago, um, the Greeks would say someone who is self-controlled can control their passions, their emotions, their appetites, as well as their words and their tongues. Christians should do this. Okay. Leaders should do this especially. So if we were to talk about self-control as an opposite to verse 7, to the vices, okay, the godly man who is worthy to lead has the ability not to be proud, controls himself so he does not fly off the handle. He is controlled in his drink. He is controlled so he doesn't get into fights. And he controls himself and he doesn't love money. He's not greedy. There is a self-mastery. There is a disciplined lifestyle <clears throat> that characterizes the elder. So let's turn to one passage here. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians 5, beginning in verse uh, 19, you see the works of the flesh. These are the vices. These are the things that an elder will not do. But in verse 22, note the contrast. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so notice how this word culminates this list of the fruit of the Spirit. Once again, all of us as Christians must do this. But as leaders in the church, we must rise above. We must be that much better, you might say. 
Now, as we think about people in our culture, people that we may know, uh, people that everybody might know, people that we might know here in this setting, um, it, it's getting harder and harder to find virtuous men. Okay? Many times churches kind of have to um, grudgingly accept certain men as leaders because they don't meet all these things, at least not very well. Um, you know, we, we live, of course, here in Western PA, and we've heard all about Franco Harris here the last few weeks, especially. And in some ways, he, he was a just man, and, and uh, he loved what was good. He was hospitable. He exemplified this in some ways. But it was very sad to me, and maybe you noticed this too, that for all the things that were said about Franco Harris, I, anyway, did not hear anything about him being a man of faith. Maybe he was, but I didn't hear anybody specifically say that. Now, Damar Hamlin, this Bills player that, whose heart stopped the other day, we have heard those things, that he is a man of faith. Um, but, you know, as you think of these kinds of people, you know, even non-Christians can be virtuous pagans, as we might say. But as Christians, we are to be different we are to stand out. Maybe, you know, you can think of a Ben Carson kind of man or something to that effect. Uh, but it's kind of hard to, to, to point out people who just really stand out and rise above in our culture today in these ways. Even in the scriptures, it can be kind of hard because you're like, well, they're virtuous in some ways, but not in other ways. You know, you think of David, you're like, well, you know, there was Bathsheba in the census. You think of Solomon, it's like, well, he had a few extra women around. Uh, you know, you can go through pretty much everybody. And you're like, well, okay, they're virtuous here, but not over there. Um, you know, Joseph and Daniel are the, really the only ones, um, in the Old Testament anyway, that we're not told that they were sinners. Now, certainly they were, but that's not what is emphasized. Okay? And so we should emulate the life of Joseph and Daniel. Okay? And so um, we've had five things that Paul says these men are not to do those things. Now we have six things where Paul says we're to have elders who are like this. Okay. Well, he then builds on this. We started, of course, especially in verse 6, and he, he brings it to a conclusion here in verse 9, where he says, Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So notice, first of all, that this word holding com connects to what has been said. Okay? And so you could say, while the elders do the things of verse 8 and even back to verse 6, okay, while the elders don't do the things of verse 7, he must hold firmly to the word of God, to the faithful word. And notice, he's not just holding on to it, he's holding firmly. There's a strong grip, a hard and fast grip. It's the idea of clinging to something, adhering to it, or having an unwavering allegiance, being loyal. These, these are ways this word can be translated in, in other passages. Um, so 
right? A, a, a man who is going to be a leader in the church cannot hold loosely to God's word. He must hold firmly, holding on and not letting go. And notice how Paul doesn't just say any word. He says the faithful word. And so this is pretty straightforwardly the, the word that is faithful to the apostolic message, the word that is consistent with the rest of Scripture. And so simply, we're looking for men who are going to hold on to what Paul taught and what Titus taught. Now today, of course, we expand those thoughts and we think of all the scriptures holding on to our understanding of the Bible. Now each denomination is going to have its own views and there's going to be some uh, variety there and so on. Christian organizations have their statement of faith and so on. But the idea is the same, right? We're to hold fast to that. Now for us, of course, we believe <coughs> that um, the 66 books of the Bible are, are authoritative and, and the other things are not. So, you know, we don't, we don't look at the apocryphal things for authority and any of that, right? And, we, of course, we then believe that the Westminster Confession of Faith is the best summary of our understanding of the Bible. We're not to hold loosely to these things. We're to hold on to it tightly. We're not just to hold on to the, the general sense of the passage or the teaching here, but we are to hold firmly. Now, the language that we use here in this context is strict subscription. Okay, we subscribe to it, and then we hold on to it. We don't just say, well, you know, I, I, I sort of believe that. You know, I believe the general ideas. No. What do the writer, writers of the Westminster Confession mean? And if you agree with it, then you hold on to that. Uh, ultimately, of course, what did Paul mean? What did Jesus mean in his words? What did Moses and David and so on and so forth, what did they, they mean? So it, it's not about what does it mean for me. It's not about I feel that this is true. Or um, there are so many opinions out there that, that we can't ever really know what the passage means, and, and so we're not going to make any decision. You know, about 99% of the Bible is pretty straightforward if you take time and look at it. There are a few places where you're like, well, I'm not quite sure about that. But if we use that uncertainty to not hold firmly, then right, it ends up in destruction. And so simply, what does it say? And hold on to it without letting go. Why? Well, you can't have a good leader otherwise. Right? You can't even be a good Christian otherwise. But notice what he continues to say. Right? Holding fast a faithful word as he has been taught right, by Paul and, 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 and Titus, that he would be able... To teach, basically, is the rest of the verse, that he may teach well. You remember what Paul says to, to Timothy there in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2? He must be able to teach. Well, if he's able to teach, it's not just the skill in teaching, but it's the fact that he's holding on to the truth, too. Now, in the rest of the sentence, uh, the New King James alters the word order slightly here. Uh, your translation may or may not do this. Uh, the, the, the order of the sentence is, is this way, okay, that in order that he may be able both to exhort, and then you have the phrase by sound doctrine, 
and to reprove, and then you have the rest of it, those who contradict. And so this is the, uh, the order of the Greek there. So the, the New King James sets about, apart by sound doctrine and, and applies it to both, and, and that's true, but it, that's not how Paul actually worded it there. Um, all right. The first idea is simply is this. He is not able to teach unless he holds firmly to the truth. But now Paul subdivides this action of teaching into two things. And so a good leader in the church is not going to do one or the other. He's going to do both. There's a both and here. He's going to exhort and he's going to convict or refute. So let's look at the first one. He's going to exhort by sound doctrine. He's going to teach the truth, this truth that he's holding on to. Now, the assumption is he's going to do this with everyone. Um, but in light of the, the contrast with, with uh, rebuking, maybe this one is emphasizing teaching uh, the true believer. But, you know, we can split that hair. But it, basically, he's going to teach the truth. He's going to teach sound doctrine. He's going to exhort them. He's going to encourage them. He's going to call them to believe what is true and to believe this sound message, this faithful message to God's word. The word here for sound, we can, we can translate it as correct or accurate, orthodox, but it also can be translated as healthy, to be sound, right, to be, to, to be healthy and not sick. And so if, if you're going to be teaching a sick doctrine, then the flock's going to get sick, right? If you're going to teach a healthy doctrine, then the, the, the flock's going to be healthy. They're going to be safe. There are dangerous doctrines. Okay, but the man of God, the leader, the faithful elder, is going to hold on to the truth and then teach that. And then secondly, he's not just going to teach the truth, but he's going to convict those who contradict. Now, that word for convict, you can translate it as reprove or rebuke even. It has the idea of exposing those who are wrong, correcting them, silencing them, showing where they are wrong in their thinking. And so those who contradict the truth then are obstinate. They are speaking against the truth. Now, I, I think in a very general sense, we can talk about unbelievers, but in light of what we're going to see in verses 10 and following, it is probable that Paul has in mind especially those who say they're believers, but they believe something really different. Okay? And so Titus here is to pick men who not only are good at teaching what is true, but are able to go to those who teach something different that is not sound and say, well, wait a second here, what you're saying is not right. This is not according to the apostolic message. And they must be able to rebuke them. Now, remember, we're, we're, we're not violent, right? Hey, and so remember some of the other virtues and, and vices and such that we talked about. They're going to do it in a way that is direct, is clear, but is loving, but won't give in either. Now, those who contradict the truth, <clears throat> where do we see them today? Well, some of them are pretty obvious, aren't they? I just saw an article again here. I see these every now and again, that uh, some pastor dressed up as a woman. They had drag story hour at the church. 
I mean, that's just obvious, right? They're contradicting the truth. But uh, there are also some other ones that should be obvious, but some people are rather confused. We have, unfortunately, many in the conservative churches in our country who are saying, elders are teaching, you need to repent of your whiteness and other critical thinking. Or even in our own denomination, we have elders who say it's okay to be a side B Christian. For those of you who don't know what that means, let me just explain a moment. This has to do with the gay agenda, right? And if you are a side A Christian, what that means is you are gay and you practice it. You're a Christian and God's happy with you. Side B Christianity means that you are gay, you identify as gay, you say you're a Christian, but you don't practice it. In our own denomination, we've been debating, is, are, are those people acceptable as leaders in the church? Okay. Our motivations, we're going to be pious from the heart. How does that work? How do you keep the seventh commandment only outwardly? You've got to do it from the heart, too. Now, those things should be obvious. These are people contradicting the truth. Then there are others that are even more difficult. And so, as I've said over the years, some different errors that we need to be aware of, the gospel-centered or Christ-centered approach that is imbalanced, or or the federal vision, or even Arminianism that says, it's up to me to decide whether or not I will be saved. Um, Those things are are ultimately against the truth. And, And we as elders must teach what is right what is true, what is consistent with God's word, and we must rebuke, reprove, correct those who would teach differently. All right, let me read a little bit here. uh, First from John Stott. And uh, he says this. The negative aspect of this teaching ministry is particularly unfashionable today. But if our Lord Jesus and his apostles did it, warning of false teachers and denouncing them, we must not draw back from it ourselves. Widespread failure to do it may well be a major cause of the doctrinal confusion which prevails in so many churches today. I was going to do this and I forgot. Let's see. He wrote this in 1996. What would he say now? We as elders must be willing to do this negative side. All right, so elders then must be able to carefully instruct the flock and boldly to refute false teachers. Let me uh, have us uh, turn a moment then to Acts chapter 20. And uh, remember we looked at this, um, I guess it would be, couple sermons ago. Um, in Acts 20, here's where Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. And note especially uh, verse 29 and 30. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So, so we as elders must protect the flock from 
the false things from the outside and the false things that happened on the inside of the church. Let me read again from Stott. This time he is quoting John Calvin. And uh, Calvin says this, A pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both. And he who has been rightly instructed in it will be able both to rule those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. Paul notes this double use of the scripture when he says that he should be able both to exhort and to convict. That's a nice summary of, of that thought. Now, when we do this, when I do this as your teaching elder, <clears throat> when Stan and Joe does this as your elders, but again, even beyond that, when we do this as Christians, then we will be protected. The flock will be protected. We will grow. We will be nurtured. We will be healthy. When we do this with ourselves, when we do this with our children or grandchildren, when we do this when we're witnessing with others, the truth will be upheld and there will be blessings. And so we, as elders especially, must hold on to the truth. We must be godly men. We must oversee the flock. We must manage God's house. And for Paul, anyway, in this section, one of the key ways that's going to happen is by holding on to the truth and teaching it. Certainly there are other things that can be done, but that's what he emphasizes here. Let me end then by reading one last thing, and this is from uh, George Knight. And he says this. These verses have presented the qualifications for an elder overseer, God's steward. Such a person must be above reproach in his Christian life in general and in these special qualifications. His family life must demonstrate his fidelity and leadership ability. He must not be controlled by any of the besetting sins of self. He must love both people and goodness and be thoughtful and prudent, obedient to God's law, seeking to please God and self-controlled because he himself is controlled by God. He must know and be zealously committed to the apostolic teaching and willing to teach it and to rebuke those who oppose it. This last responsibility, especially that of rebuking those who speak against, leads immediately into the next section and indicates the practical and necessary value of such leaders to the health and welfare of the congregation. Certainly a nice summary of these verses, but um, as I mentioned here, um, whatever it was, a few sermons ago, when Paul gave these tasks to Titus, this is first. Because if you don't have good leaders, it's pretty hard to have a healthy church. And so he starts with this, and we will transition next time into the, the, the false teaching and how we need to, to rebuke those who would teach these things. All right, well, a few thoughts here tonight and on this section. And uh, may God be uh, continuing to be merciful to us here in this way, especially as we go forward as a church. And at some point, somewhere down the road, we'll need more elders. And so may God be gracious as he has been in this way uh, to our flock. Let's pray together.
Our Father and God, we again thank you for your word, and we thank you here for uh, this list of, of qualities and responsibilities. And Lord, we um, um, just ask that you would uh, be merciful to us, every one of us as Christians, that you would help all of us to live according to these things, that, that none of us, especially those of us who are not leaders, that we wouldn't just say, oh, we'll leave it up for the professionals to do that. Okay, but all of us are to be uh, honoring you in these ways. And, and so strengthen us by your spirit in these ways. We pray especially then for uh, the elders here in this place, that you would strengthen us to, to live according to these things. And that you would help us to improve in our godliness in these ways. We do pray, as, as I just mentioned, Lord, that uh, as, as the days proceed and uh, time uh, marches on and, and things change, that you would be gracious uh, to this congregation and uh, raising up more uh, godly men to lead and uh, to to steward and to shepherd and to oversee uh, this flock here and so lord we pray that you would be uh, merciful here in these ways your name would be exalted in it all we pray all these things then in jesus name amen